Well, good evening, our church family. Uh, we are continuing our studies in the book of Revelation. And what I'm going to do, uh, we last week, we began looking at the letter to the church of Laodicea. So today what we'll do is continue that. And I want to read the, the entire letter and then pick up hopefully where, well, where we left off and, and complete the letter. And to the angel of the church in Laodicea, write these words of the amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of God's creation. I know your works. You are neither cold nor hot. What are a wood that you were either cold or hot? So because you are lukewarm and neither hot or cold nor cold, I will spit you out of my mouth. For you say, I am rich, I have prospered, I need nothing, not realizing that you are wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked. I counsel you to buy from me gold refined by fire so that you may be rich, white garments so that you may clothe yourself, uh, clothe yourself and the shame of your nakedness may not be seen and salve to anoint your eyes so that you may see those whom I, I love, I reprove and discipline. So be zealous and repent. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and eat with him and he with me. The one who conquers, I will grant him to sit with me on my throne as I conquered and sat down with my father on his throne. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. I want to pick up uh, in part of Jesus' analysis of this particular church, and I'm going to spend a lot of time on developing this, this first point of his analysis because it's apparent that the membership of this local congregation reflected the wealth of the city in the same way that Jesus uses analogies about hot and cold in reference to the water supply that they depended on versus the water, plot, uh, water supply of the city, uh, it seems as if this church reflected the wealth of the city. So in other words, this is a congregation that was made up of largely wealthy people. Now, of course, being rich in and of itself is not a bad thing. And I would argue, in fact, it's very clear that Jesus rebukes them, not for their wealth, but because they equated their financial wealth, uh, they equated that fi financial wealth as being spiritual strength. And it, they define themselves by these external things. So this false equivalency uh, is, is really the tendency of the fallen mindset. In other words, it's natural for us as fallen humans to evaluate our strength and our well-being by external things. Uh, recently, we did a message from Jeremiah 7, where the, or Jeremiah 17, where the comparison is between the person who trusts in their own strength or the flesh of man versus trusting in God. So this, this false equivalency of determining one's strength and well-being by their external circumstances and more 
uh, more directly to their fallen wealth is just really a symptom of our fallen mindset in general. And what I want to do is just kind of flesh out uh, how Jesus, especially in the Gospels, on a number of occasions, addresses that problem specifically as it relates to wealth, but it's not just wealth. It's the tendency to evaluate our well-being and to evaluate our worth by external things, things that are temporal, things that are transitory. But in a number of cases, because I think this is a problem just for the fallen mindset in general, and especially the fallen mindset that is well off, that's financially well off. Uh, so Jesus addresses this on a number of occasions in, uh, in the Gospels. We see it, for instance, in the rich fool, uh, the story that he gives or the parable that he gives in Luke chapter 12, verses 13 through 21. We alluded to it uh, a few weeks ago. But with the rich fool, uh, he was a farmer and he had a bumper crop and he had to tear down his old barns to house all of his of his uh, his, his his flock or excuse me of of his his crops and then he when when he had a place for all of his crops he just sat back and said eat drink and be merry and jesus says you know you fool because your soul is required of you uh, on this night and then also jesus tells the story of the rich man and lazarus and again the parallel is this that the rich man wasn't just cruel to Lazarus, but the idea was the rich man was comfortable in his wealth and neglected and holding in mind that Jesus is more than likely telling the story of a, of, of a Jewish, from a Jewish perspective. So he had neglected the things of God because he was complacent and comfortable in his, uh, in, in his wealth. And then, of course, you have the encounter with the rich young ruler in Luke chapter 18, uh, verses 18 through 30. Now, when Jesus tells the young man to sell all that he had and to distribute it to the poor, and he says this, and you will have treasure in heaven. Luke then goes on to say that when the young man heard this, he became very sad because he was extremely rich. And this prompts Jesus to say how difficult it is for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. For it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. Now, when the people who were around Jesus heard him say this, they asked the question, then who can be saved? And Jesus' answer to them was that for man, it's impossible. But for God, it is possible. Uh, so for God, only God can change the heart. Whether the person is wealthy or not, only God can change the heart to make a person see their need for something outside of themselves. So God, I mean, Jesus addresses this, but... And, and he addresses it in general in the Gospels, our tendency to trust in things, our tendency to evaluate ourselves by what we perceive to be uh, visible and physical means of security and support. 
This is why he admonishes in his Sermon on the Mount to not store your treasures here on earth where moth can, can get to it and thieves can get to it, but put your treasures in heavenly places where it can't be disturbed. So this is an ongoing problem because this is, this is part of our fallen nature to depend on, on things, uh, physical things, to depend on them for our support and to define ourselves by those things. And the more stuff we have, uh, the less dependent we will be on anyone else. And we, again, part of the fallen nature is we pride ourselves on being independent, that we don't have any need of anything. Now, I think the part of the challenge and the struggle for rich people who become Christians, this is part of, this is part of their struggle with the world, the flesh, and the devil that they would be able to now see themselves in light of their position in Christ rather than in light of their possessions and to assume themselves to have um, certain prerogatives that they are used to because of their possessions. So what we see throughout the New Testament, I think part of this is gonna, we'll see how it comes home here with this particular church, Part of the challenge in the New Testament, and we see this in the epistles, is that the writers of the New Testament usually address this issue for Christians who are rich. Again, I want to be absolutely clear on this. The Bible nowhere denounces us for being physically or financially well off. The struggle is for the fallen, for, for fallen man to have possessions and still, and, and to filter their possessions through their position in Christ. So outside of Christ, it's almost impossible because we think we have everything that we need. And we think that we are what our wealth can, can acquire for us. But inside of Christ, or in the church, and, and being connected to Christ, there's always that challenge. And I think as uh, the world, the flesh, and the devil are always, and by the world, we simply mean the collective fallen mindset. The flesh is the fallen, your individual fallen mindset, and the devil is the one who sort of manipulates between the two. So the challenge for uh, any believer, as we struggle with our fallen nature, we will struggle with the world, the flesh, and the devil according to our circumstances. And for the rich person, this is an added burden that they will have to make sure that they view themselves in light of their position in Christ rather than according to their riches and possessions. Uh, and this, it's, it's for this reason, or I should say, this is the basis, that, that challenge is the basis for a number of exit, uh, basic exhortations in the New Testament concerning the wealthy. I'll just give you a couple of examples. Uh, in 1 Timothy chapter 6, verses 17 through 18, Paul writes this, As for the rich in this present age, charge them not to be haughty, nor to set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches, but on God, who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. They are to do good, 
and to be rich in good works, to be generous and ready to share. So that's that's Paul. He's not he's not saying, you know, if you are rich, you have to give your possessions away. And I think that's one of the misreadings that people have um, with the rich young ruler. And let me just say, as an addendum to the rich young ruler story, uh, that is not Jesus is not giving this young man uh, an invitation to the, a gospel invitation. What Jesus is doing in the instance with that young man who thinks that he has met the requirements of the law, Jesus is simply demonstrating that he has failed to meet the standards of the law because he has acknowledged Jesus as being good. As he says, no one is good but God. So therefore, to acknowledge Jesus to be good is to acknowledge that he's God, as Stephen Charnock has said. And he's assuming that he has met both tables of the law. So if he's acknowledging that Jesus is God and he understands that the second table of the law is to love your neighbor as yourself, then Jesus says, then prove it. Give, take everything that you own, sell it, give the proceeds to the poor, and then follow me because you acknowledge, you're acknowledging me as being God. And at that point, uh, the rich young ruler could have said, but I don't want to. I can't. I, I, I just can't do that. At which point, he's acknowledging his failure to really understand the two tables of the law. And the gospel comes in at the point that we recognize we haven't and we can't. But instead, the rich young ruler goes away sorrowful uh, rather than repenting and turning to Christ. In any event, what, what the apostle is doing here in 1 Timothy is not telling rich people that they need to liquidate their assets or to give them to the church. And we can also point out that the liberality that we see in, in uh, the early chapters of Acts, especially in Acts 2 through 4, or 2 through 5, where people just you know took possessions that they owned and, and sold those extra possessions or homes and then gave the proceeds to the apostles to distribute uh, to the needs of the, of the church, that wasn't by compulsion. And that wasn't by uh, apostolic uh, mandate. They freely did that. So they didn't have to do it. As Jesus tells Ananias and Sapphira, while the property was yours, wasn't it yours to do with as you chose? And when you sold it and you received the proceeds, wasn't it yours to do with as you saw fit? So nowhere does the Bible say that Christians have to be poor. The challenge is, in our fallen nature, we always, whether we are rich or poor, we love to be self-sufficient. And so the challenge is for those who have many possessions to depend on those possessions and to find themselves by it. So Paul's challenge in 1 Timothy 6 is for those who are rich to see themselves first in light of who they are in Christ, and therefore he gives other recommendations. But we see something similar in James chapter 1, uh, verses 9 through 11. He says, says, Let the lowly brother boast in his exaltation, and the rich in his humiliation, because like a flower, uh, uh, like a flower of the grass, he will pass away. 
for the sun rises with its scorching heat and withers the grass and its flower and its flower falls and its beauty perishes. So will the rich man fade away in the midst of his pursuits. So these warnings, and there are others, the love of money is the root of all evil. That's connected to a warning to those who are in Christ and maintain great wealth. It's not to say that the wealth is wrong. It's simply to say that the more we possess physically in this life, the more sufficient we see ourselves to be and the less dependent we are on Christ. Uh, I think of a brother years ago, I may have mentioned this before, who was not a member of, of our church, but his wife was. And I sat down, to, went to, to meet with a number of the husbands whose wives were attending the church, but they weren't. And I went to this brother, and in particular, we had conversations, and he just point blank said, what can the church offer me? He says, you know, I have my own business. I helped each of my adult children buy their first home. My wife is only working because she wants to. I have everything. My house is paid for. Uh, what do I need the church for? And I, I, it was, you know, it was like a softball. I'm glad you asked because your biggest problem is not your financial stability. Your biggest problem is your standing before God. And eventually, you know, we, we had conversations. But I never will forget when his wife was diagnosed with cancer. And uh, she called me over so that she could tell, I could be present when she told her family that uh, she only had X amount of time to live, that, that she was terminal. And afterwards, he pulled me aside and uh, we talked. And then he went over to his wife and he was just crying, just broken. And he said this, he says, I can't fix this. And that's that point of brokenness that, that God needs, that, that we need to have before we can understand the riches that are in Christ. That our biggest problem is not financial security. Our biggest problem is not what's satisfied by physical structures like homes. Our biggest problem is we are at enmity with an all-knowing, all-present, all-powerful God. And there is nothing that we can save that will fix us in that situation. So the problem with this church and the problem that the New Testament writers are warning well-off Christians, financially well-off Christians, is that you don't lean more on your possessions than you lean on Christ on the one hand. And on the other hand, don't think that your, your possessions are the reason for your position in Christ. I think both of those are legitimate challenges to the fallen mind. Now, I mentioned all of these other passages and we've gone through all of these details to undergird a couple things to, or to show as we move back to the church of Laodicea, a couple of undergirding concerns here. One is, or, or I should say undergirds how serious certain things are. And so one thing that we see that's very serious and the Bible takes it very serious 
that individual Christians or collective church bodies, the Bible takes very serious how we define ourselves. I'm not talking about just rank unbelievers. I'm talking about those who are in Christ, whether we are individuals or we are a collective church body. The Bible is serious in how we define ourselves and we define our strength that we would be found depending upon what God has given us in, the, in, in Christ, wholly resting, wholly depending on what he has given us and not external things. So we see all of these warnings and we see the teachings of Jesus that addresses the, 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 the tendency of our fallen flesh to take comfort in something that can't give us comfort. I remember a child in a Sunday school class years ago, I think it was first or second church that I pastored, and she told her Sunday school teacher, she was talking, the, the teacher was talking about coveting. And the child said something along the lines of, we shouldn't love anything that can't love us back. I said, ah, wow, that, that says it. And the tendency of our fallen state is to heap much affection on things that are transitory. And then we define ourselves by those things. We define ourselves by the neighborhoods we live in. We define, churches define themselves by the size of their buildings. They define themselves by their income. They define themselves by these things. And so the Bible is very serious when about about Christians who seek to define themselves by these external temporal things and these transitory things, not only define themselves by it, but consider that as the basis of their strength. Listen, there's nothing that we have. There is no structure that is standing, that has been erected by man that can't be overthrown in a matter of moments. I grew up in Southern California and uh, the home of earthquakes, you know, and I've seen buildings that took maybe years to build. Uh, a minute and a half of an earthquake will just completely ruin it to the point where it has to be rebuilt. So sometimes we take, uh, we take inordinate pride in external things and define ourselves by those things. In fact, we, ha we have such an addiction to, um, to success that some people will not go to a particular church because it looks small. It, it's, it's, uh, it, you know, it's a storefront. Whereas others will visit a church simply because of its physical appearance. The Bible takes serious any Christian individually or a church body that defines itself and its strength by transitory temporal things. And that's what we see with the letter to the church of Laodicea. But also the Bible is, it takes seriously the problem or, or how we place our value on these external things so that, uh, because the problem is this, as we'll see in a moment here, the more we value, the more value we place on these external things, the less value we will place on the riches of God's grace in the gospel. That's the challenge. Now, 
even though it's not dealing with this in particular, but it does have to do with how one measure or de defines one's strength. When Paul talks about the thorn in the flesh that he struggled with in 2 Corinthians, he said he prayed that the Lord would remove that, that, that thorn. He prayed three times, and finally the Lord answered him and told him that my grace is sufficient for you, that in your weakness my strength may be manifest. So the more we value our external strength, the less we will value the riches of God's grace in the person or, or in the gospel. And that is clearly the case with the church of Laodicea. Therefore, as we move now to verse 18 in particular, once Jesus addresses them in verse 17, where he says that they that he, his diagnosis of them is different from their self-perception. Their self-perception is they are rich and they need nothing. And Jesus gives an analysis that they are actually poor, they are wretched, they are blind, and they are naked. So in verse 18, Jesus counsels them. And his counsel is that they are to look to him and only in looking to him are they able to see themselves as they truly are. Look at verse 18. I counsel you to buy from me gold refined by fire so that you may be rich and white garments so that you may clothe yourselves and the shame of your nakedness may not be seen and salve to anoint your eyes so that you may see. Let's be clear. Jesus is using metaphor. He is not saying that they need to get anything else. His issue with them is they are measuring themselves by external standards, and therefore they have a false sense of strength. So he counsels them instead not to purchase as with money or silver or gold, but he's really telling them to look to him. Look to him or see them, themselves through him so that they can have a true evaluation of themselves. Uh, this goes back to some of the passages that we looked at, uh, for instance, in the James passage, when James says, let the, the poor man uh, glory in his exaltation, the lowly brother, because even though socially, you may be considered low, but in Christ you've been exalted because you are, you are in him. Whereas the rich man, he says, let the rich man boast in his humiliation because the same place that exalts us also lowers us. There is no one who comes to Christ that is not exalted, but there is no one who comes to Christ that is not first humiliated, brought low. Jonathan Edwards uh, wrote a book, uh, or the title of it, no, I think it was a sermon. Yeah, it was the title of one of his sermons, that before God makes men mindful of his mercy, he first makes them mindful of their misery. And I've argued that no one 
comes to Christ until they first recognize their need for him. And to need him is to recognize, as the hymn writer says, nothing in my hands I bring, simply to thy cross I cling. So the rich man in his, in his community, in his circle of friends, is exalted simply because of his possessions. But when he comes to Christ, he realizes that his possessions are not enough. And so therefore, he's brought low. And, and so the, the warning or the, the counsel that Jesus gives is really kind of, a, in, in a sense, a return to that, that point of humility. Yes, your, your possessions are great, but first see yourself as needy. And that's what we do when we come to, to the gospel. And no one, either at the point of salvation, nor in the course of their Christian life, will make much use of the gospel until you recognize your impoverished state without it. The, uh, the gospel is not an additive to uh, all of our other accolades and accomplishments. The, the Bible is, I mean, excuse me, the Bible, the gospel is our all. So Jesus says, he's not saying go out and uh, here, I have something for sale. If you labor, I'll give you this. No, what he's saying, he's, he's counseling them to take a better look, take a closer look at the gospel. Because in the gospel, uh, in, in fact, he's kind of... Uh, echoing the sentiment of Isaiah. Uh, come, everyone who hungers, everyone who thirsts, and buy. Why do you labor for that which, which perishes, bread that, that perishes? Come and receive without cost. And so Jesus is counseling this church, this group of financially well-off believers to look at him. And it's only as they really see the beauty of of what is given in Christ, that they are able to see themselves as they truly are. Now, Paul is a good example, even though this is the book of Revelation, but Paul is certainly a good example. In 1 Timothy, he tells them about the riches of the gospel, and he, he basically num, uh, narrows the gospel to this. He, he came to save sinners. Jesus came to save sinners, and then he says, in the present tense, of whom I am chief. He's not talking about his past. Because the gospel is good news for those who recognize what we really are. And Jesus, no matter who you are, and, and the reason I use Paul as an example here, Paul is the foremost theologian outside of Christ in the New Testament. Paul is the chief writer of the New Testament. And yet, as he sees himself in Christ, he sees what God has given him in Christ, but he sees himself as he truly is. No individual and no collective group of, of believers can truly evaluate themselves without a true grasp of who and what Christ is for us. And so Jesus is counseling them. And notice the metaphors that he uses. He says, if you, uh, he says in verse 18, 
I counsel you to buy from me gold. Because all of the riches of God's grace are in Christ. And he says, gold that has been refined by fire, white garments, surely that must uh, correspond to the righteousness of Christ. See in me what purity really is. And what you'll see is not a, a model to be imitated, but what you will see first and foremost, a standard that you cannot reach, but a God who has graciously given you that standard in Christ. That's what Paul means in Philippians, that I want to be found not having a righteousness of my own, which is from the law, but the righteousness of another, which is the righteousness, which is by faith, the righteousness of Christ. But then he also says this, buy from me so that you can get, purchase eye salve, so that you can truly see yourself. Now, this doesn't mean that Jesus wants this church to always have a pity party and always to have their heads down, woe is me kind of mentality. But however much or little we possess, we will have a wrong estimation of it until we see ourselves truly in Christ. And when we are in Christ, what we will see is that our much is only a little, and our little is much. So Jesus is, is counseling them to really look to him as he's presented in the gospel. And as they look to him, then they'll be able to truly see themselves as they really are. Next thing we see in verse 19. To me, verse 19, which is the call to repent. In verse 19, he says, um, those whom I love... I reprove, and I think that's that's important for something we're going to see in a moment. Those whom I love, I reprove and discipline. And here's the call. So be zealous and repent. So I think what we see here in verse 19, it seems to be an indication of the evidence of their true condition, uh, uh, condition is an absence of zeal for the things of the gospel. So the call to repent is coupled with be zealous. So he's not telling them to get anything else. It's not that you are lacking anything, but evidence of the condition of their truly being poor is even though they have access to the gospel, and we could say they have access to the means of grace, they're not zealous about these things. Maybe they've become complacent in these things. And complacency on the part of the people of God with the ordinary means of grace always makes us vulnerable for extraordinary claims that will give us some kind of super spiritual empowerment. In other words, the more we take for granted the ordinary means of grace, of worship, the ministry of the word, the sacraments, fellowship with, with like-minded brothers and sisters. As we take those things for granted and we find ourselves just kind of going through the motion, we become vulnerable to other formulas and programs that are, that are, are packaged in a way that they will give you spiritual adrenaline. 
So we will always need to have retreats. We'll always need to have something else to feed us. We'll need a revival. And that basically what Jesus is saying is your revival is in the gospel. So he's counseling them to look to him. And I think there's a connection between the lost zeal and their looking to Christ and seeing themselves through Christ because that's what fires us, fires us up to do the work and, and will of God. In Isaiah 6, I think of Isaiah when he comes in and he sees the, the glory of the Lord and he's overwhelmed by the glory of God. And he says, woe is me, for I am undone. I'm a man of unclean lips. And, I've, I've, and I come from a people of unclean lips. And the Lord has these angelic beings to take live coals from the fire and purge his lips. In other words, the very thing that Isaiah sees as condemning him, he's purged. It's, it's, it's symbolic of him having his sins purged. And then he hears the voice of the Lord, who now will go for me? And Isaiah speaks up, Lord, send me, I'll go. In other words, the grace that he has received from the glory of God is what gives him zeal to do the work of God. Now, we all get worn down. We all get, you know, we, we, we sometimes get caught up in the monotony of what we do and we fail to breathe and we fail to enjoy the moment. How many times have we stood in, in worship singing hymns and then our minds wandering to something else? That happens. But the, it's, we, here's the challenge. The challenge is that we can't let our moments of staleness, our moments of complacency, to think that means we need something else. If we've become complacent with the ordinary means of grace that convey to us the extraordinary riches of God's grace, then the problem is not with the means. The problem is with us. And so Jesus counsels them. Yes, see yourself as you truly are and repent. In other words, turn. Have a change of mind about your external things as you see the glory and the grace that you have received in me and your zeal is connected to your ability to see me. That's the point that Jesus is, uh, is, is making here. So again, I would argue that verse 19 seems to indicate that the outward sign that Jesus' analysis of this church is what it is is because they may be excited about some things because I don't think this means that this church was wealthy and they were just cold. I think they were excited about some things but not excited about the right things. Well, that brings us to a fourth thing and that is in verse 20, the invitation. And this is basically where I, I want to close out and looking at the invitation. We know that the words of Christ at the end, that everyone who has an ear, let him hear what, what he says to the churches. But I really want to focus on the invitation in verse 20. Behold, 
I stand at the door and knock. And if anyone hears my voice and opens and, uh, and opens, I will come in to him and eat with him and him with me. Now, contrary to how this verse is often used as an invitation to uh, uh, un unbelievers, an invitation to salvation to unbelievers, uh, really, as you see it in its context, and let me just say this, that certainly coming to Jesus, coming to saving faith is uh, embracing Christ as he presented here, to recognize that he he is the one to hear him and to respond to him. It is equivalent to what Jesus says, the, the invitation in Matthew 11. Come unto me, all ye who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. So I can see where we can apply this to unbelievers, that Jesus is inviting you through the preaching of the gospel to come to him. And if you would just open the door, open up and let him in. That's I, I, I get why people make that connection. But here's what we miss. This invitation is not given to unbelievers. This invitation is given to a church. Not just, not just an individual believer, but this invitation, this gospel invitation is given to a church. And I think what seems to be implied here is that this church there is, seems to be at least a healthy and a faithful ministry of the word. In other words, this church is what they are, and their perception is what it is, not because they have a minister who has, who's preached prosperity gospel. It seems that Jesus is implying that they have a faithful ministry of the word and their perception of self is contrary to the word they've received. Notice what he says in the invitation. If anyone hears my voice, well, how will they hear his voice? How does the church hear the voice of Christ? And I will not discount individual experiences where the word of Christ is magnified to you in a particular subjective way. I'm not minimizing that or saying it can't happen and doesn't happen, but because Jesus is addressing a church body, the primary way in which Jesus' voice is heard to the church or, or by the church is through the ministry of the word. I wanna read uh, from Ephesians, Ephesians chapter four, and this is after Paul has challenged uh, the Ephesians to not act like the rest of the uh, Gentiles, don't walk like the rest of the Gentiles who are walking according to the darkness of their minds, etc. But then he says this in verse, um, in verse 20, uh, Ephesians chapter 4, beginning in verse 20. But this is not the way you learn Christ, assuming that, you have heard about him and were taught in him as the truth is in Jesus. In other translations, it says, as you have heard him. 
So how do we hear the voice of Christ? Because what Jesus is saying in this invitation is I will open up to anyone who hears my voice. And the way in which we ordinarily hear the voice of Christ is through the ministry of the word, the ordinary ministry of the word. And so his, his counsel to them is to evaluate yourself in light of me. In other words, come back to the gospel, which I think you can argue once again that Jesus is assuming that there is a healthy ministry of the word already in place in the church of Laodicea, but they have evaluated themselves by external things rather than the ministry of the word. So it's very much possible that you have a faithful proclamation of, of uh, uh, law and gospel, you have a faithful ministry of the Lord's Supper, and yet people are still seeing themselves according to the wrong standard. So Jesus' invitation to them is not, he's not saying that he's outside of the church. What he's suggesting is that those who are in the church have minimized the things that enlarge, enlarges his grace or the, God's grace in him and have maximized external things. So the ministry of the word is in a sense taken for granted. Uh, good friend Michael Horton used to say years ago, and I think he was the first person that I heard make mention of this phrase, assuming the gospel. And there are many churches and many Christians that get on that path of assuming the gospel, that we want to move on to bigger and better things because people already know the gospel. And I'll say this as clear as possible. We never outgrow our need for the gospel. Our circumstances and situations may be as such that we apply the truth of the gospel in different contexts, in different situations, different phases of life. But we always, whether you are on top of the world or the world is on top of you, we are always in constant need of the gospel. And the moment we take it for granted, we will evaluate ourselves and the world around us according to a wrong standard. We will become unnecessarily either overwhelmed by circumstances or we will be unnecessarily taken in so that we are, we become, we become overwhelmed in circumstances. So either in or by the circumstance if we don't recognize who we are in Christ. So all Jesus is doing in this elaborate invitation is not saying that he has withheld any of this from them, but the discipline that he has offered is to challenge them to see themselves as they truly are. And what he's offering in this invitation is to now really listen to the gospel. Yes, you might be excited about taking the gospel to the uttermost parts of the world, but don't ever lose your zeal for you having received God's grace right here, right now where you are. 
It's good to want to feed the children over here and over there and to take care of orphans. But don't ever lose sight of the fact that you, without Christ, are poor, naked, and blind. That you are the one who has been gathered. You're the lost sheep. You're the broken one. And it's not until we can appreciate the gift of God's grace in the person of Christ that we will understand how deep our brokenness is and how sufficient his grace is. And when we lose zeal for that, we will elevate things, programs, and, and all sorts of gimmicks and gadgets so that the gospel lies obscure. Jesus' counsel to the church of Laodicea, this church who boasted in their wealth, this church who thought they had no need of anything because they assumed since they knew the gospel, maybe they were confessional, maybe they were creedal, and they, but they lost their zeal. They lost the zeal for the things of God's grace. And brothers and sisters, not only does that put us on a dangerous course where we become vulnerable to some charlatan who will sell us zeal in a bottle or put it on our heads and, you know, as olive oil, and this is what you need. And God's, when Jesus says, no, just, just listen, hear my voice. And if you hear my voice, when you come to the table, what you will be reminded of is that you are at the table with me, and I will sup with you, and you'll be able to sup with me. When we come to the table and we receive the elements of the broken body and shed blood of our Lord, let us be reminded we are dining at the banquet table of the Lamb. And there is nothing that we can experience in this world. There is no five-star restaurant. There is no star chef that can feed us with a better meal than what we receive at the table of the Lord. And when we value what we receive at the Lord's table, it's then that we see that we are indeed pitiable. It is then that we see that we are wounded and broken and flawed and we are despicable. But in him, we have become accepted in the beloved. Brothers and sisters, we are somebody, not because of the side of town we are from, not because of the schools that we may have attended, not because of the wealth that we have amassed, not because of the, the accomplishments in our vocation. We are something because we are the children of the Most High God, and he has transferred us from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of his beloved son. And the moment we begin to take that for granted, we become like the church of Laodicea. I don't need you. I just need something else. And so Jesus says, come, 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 let us reason together. And I stand at the door of the ordinary means of grace. And if anyone hears me through the proclamation of that gospel and open up, then I'll come in and I'll eat with him and he'll be able to eat with me. Our dignity, 
and our worth and our value comes from who we are in Christ. We are always more than our smallness and we are always less than our greatest accomplishment until we bring it together in Christ. That's Jesus' challenge to the church of Laodicea. That's his call and his challenge to all of us individually and corporately that we would see ourselves in him and not overvalue or overestimate the worth of anything else that is transitory and temporary. Let's pray. Our God and our Father, we come to you in the blessed name of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, thanking you for reminding us, as Jesus has said in the course of his earthly ministry, without him we can do nothing, but in him we can do all things. Strengthen us by his grace, by your grace in him that we would see our value, we would see our dignity, we would see our worth through his wounds so that we would be healed for your glory and your service. Father, we thank you for your ordinary means of grace. And if somehow we have lost zeal for these things, if somehow we have failed to appreciate and properly evaluate the worth of the broken body and shed blood of our Savior. The fact that the Word was made flesh and dwelt amongst us. The fact that He was raised for our justification and has, has gone behind the veil as our intercessor. Lord, if we have lost zeal for that truth, we pray that you would awaken us. Give us a heart to repent so that we could see your riches as they are and we would see our riches as they are. Thank you for Christ and it's in his name that we pray. Amen.